I feel it would not be right for me to say, you know, because I have a vision, I want to start this thing. And some people are going to have to low-key suffer for that dream to be achieved. Like, I don't want to do that until I feel like I'm, I have a model that I believe in. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Hiesel, here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard. Today, Anna's talking to Jenny Dorsey, who many people may recognize from competing on Food Network shows like Chopped, Beat Bobby Flay, and Cutthroat Kitchen. But Jenny also happens to be an incredible writer, recipe developer, and she's the founder of the nonprofit Studio Atau, which creates educational tools for food publications and organizations to think inclusively and equitably about the work that they do. Yeah, and I actually interviewed Jenny a couple years back and have participated in a couple of the Studio Tao workshops. And I just, I love the work that Jenny and her team are doing. And here's your conversation with Jenny. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Jenny. Thanks so much for having me. So you've worked in Michelin star restaurants, you've competed on cooking shows on TV, and you've written for lots of magazines and food publications. Was there a specific moment in your career in food that sort of sparked an interest in getting into activism? I think it honestly dates back to culinary school and just having this resounding feeling of is everyone just missing what these these vibes that I'm picking up that there's this kind of like embedded not just sexism which I think more people are aware of but there's embedded racism there's a a lot of kind of embedded otherism in the way we talk about food and the way we teach food and I think at the time I just didn't have the vocabulary for it yet. So it kind of, you know, it was just in the back of my mind, something that I was thinking about, something that was bothering me, but I didn't know how to complain or voice my frustration to the staff or the administration. And it kind of just festered there. And I started continually seeing it in restaurants, in publications. And I, 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 I like, I felt like that kind of just like hit some sort of edge, perhaps um, in around 2018 when I started doing more events that were very personal, things that were more based on my identity, and realizing there was still this big gap between building awareness, right, getting people to talk a little bit more about themes like the Asian American identity or the model minority myth that is great. Like, I want people to have those kind of conversations and probe and get to know each other, but it seemed that there was still this gap between building awareness and actually getting action to happen or real change to happen, especially systematic change within organizations or within policies. And I wanted to be part of that, but I wasn't sure how. So I think to date, it's still been a journey of trying to figure out where where you can make the most impact. Um, Still figuring that out. I remember reading Matt's interview on Taste a few years ago with you about Studio Tao, the nonprofit that you founded, and being really struck by the ways that you've used technology like virtual reality goggles in seminars and dinners and performances. How does virtual reality tie into talking about these subjects and how does it tie into activism? 
Yeah, VR was such an interesting like part of that journey. So as an introvert myself, one of the things I consistently noticed uh, from a distance, you know, I'm in the kitchen and seeing how these dinners would play out. And whenever you're in a communal or group setting, I think we've all been the person where you're sitting, you're having a good time. But over the course, you know, two to three hours while you're eating dinner, there's usually one, maybe two personalities that start to really dominate the conversation. And everyone's like, oh, that guy. You know, God, will he just, yeah. So I think like you see that play out over and over and over again. And I realize, especially in settings where you want people to talk about vulnerable things, you want them to talk about things that might be uncomfortable, it becomes increasingly harder to kind of tap into that part of someone's psyche when you have such a big personality. And I don't want to hate on extroverts because it's not like they're doing it often on purpose. That's just kind of who they are. But one of the most important books I've honestly ever read is this book called Quiet by Susan Cain. And she's really advocating for we need to be thinking about embedding systems within you know our workplace into our personal lives that are really advocating for how introverts move around the world and setting them up for success. And one of the things she talks about often is this thing called a restorative niche where introverts can just not be bothered by all the stuff going on outside and be able to take a pause and kind of collect themselves and think about what they want, think about what their thoughts are, you know, formulate their opinions, um, void of other people and other thoughts and opinions and noises and all that stuff and kind of come back. And so what is kind of magical about virtual reality is that you can be sitting you know, a foot, less than a foot in New York restaurants, um, away from someone and you put on this headset and suddenly you're just in a different place. You can't hear them. You can't see them. You can give every single person a very consistent but a very unique uh, experience that is their own and they can absorb the art or the message in their own way, kind of have a second to really formulate their own ideas and opinion and reaction, kind of feel their reaction to it and then come out of that and then continue to engage in the conversation. So in the series that we were using virtual reality in, it's called Asian in America. It talks about the Asian American identity through six courses of food, three courses of cocktails, and virtual reality and poetry. Um, We only use maybe, I think, a combined seven minutes of VR. It's not very much in the grand scheme of like three hours, but by embedding that throughout the dinner, just giving people kind of that pause, that reflection time, we saw the kind of energy level across the entire room just stay very consistent versus usually you see a peak when people start getting drunk and then you see a kind of a steady decline over the rest of the night. And so it was really interesting to kind of watch how like social psychology played out in those settings and honestly see people push the conversation a little bit more deeply. Wow. I mean, this makes me think about the possibilities for like in a school using similar techniques. I mean, you talked about the experience of being in culinary school and having sort of all of these thoughts that you weren't really comfortable articulating at the time. And I mean, school is such a similar hierarchy of the loudest people sort of getting the most airtime and the quietest people sort of having to introvert those opinions. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot of VR that's being used for education and also for things like uh, psychology or sorry, um, for therapy, as well as learning about like microaggressions at the workplace. They've also been using it, interestingly enough, in like retirement facilities, places where people are not mobile, but maybe want to travel, you know, hypothetical quote unquote travel. And so, yeah, it's seen a lot of really interesting applications, but I think education is really one that 
yeah, has really struck me. I worked with a VR developer, and he said something. I remember he was like, you know, I grew up really poor, and um, I now really care about VR and education context because as a kid, I needed something that would get me away from thinking about how hungry I was to being focused on school. And I mean, there's a lot of problems to fix there. Like being hungry is not a thing that we should just be trying to overcome. But the fact that, you know, he was seeing VR as this thing that could really draw children in and be excited about learning, I think is something that we should definitely explore more. Definitely. I think I first learned about Studio Tao when you published your toolkit for talking about and addressing tokenism in food media. But what else has Studio Tao been up to in like just the last year or so and this year? Yeah. So we uh, initially started just talking about tokenism within equitable representation and food media and really saw that toolkit take off. And so we realized there was a lot of recommendations we put forth in that initial toolkit um, that were, I think, a little bit more focused on kind of like what the individual can do. Things like, you know, as an editor-in-chief, you can make 30 minutes of your time available every month just to talk to emerging writers. Like, things that are great in an individual context, but we realized there was definitely a gap in terms of how do you systematically implement processes within an organization that are going to encourage this kind of behavior over and over again. Because one of the issues when we want large-scale change is that you have the kind of individual good actors, and if they become tired, if they leave an organization, then there's no kind of like legacy that gets left behind because so much of it is wrapped up in one person. And so from there, we started doing these account, we call them accountability salons. They were like small focus groups comprised of editors across various food media organizations to come together regularly and talk about the challenges that they were facing implementing some of these bigger changes within their organization, everything from revamping their pitch guidelines to um, working with freelancers in a more kind of invested economy sort of way instead of one-time contracts to even like just sensitivity edits or being able to, you know, work through a more sensitive issue using more like the opinions of junior staffers and the like. And so from there, we published another toolkit that's about embedding these processes within an organization that's much more specific to how are you working with your employee resource groups? How are you working with human resources? How do you diversify your um, talent as well as your content pipeline? Things that I think are a little bit, yeah, more process driven. So we published that uh, middle of last year that took about 12 months of like interviews and focus groups. Um, and we won an award for that recently, which was pretty cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I have some feelings about awards that we can get to maybe later. But <laughs> anyway, that was cool regardless. And then this year and next year, we're really focused on looking at the intersection of gentrification and hospitality and thinking about what does it mean to not only be like a community invested business, but also a hospitality business that is aware of, you know, how it's located within the cycle of gentrification. Whether we like it or not, a lot of times hospitality businesses are seen as one of the signifiers of gentrification. And we can talk about how that's maybe not necessarily accurate, but it is a, a, a widespread feeling um, and what it means as a incoming business or an existing business that's evolving to really think about like community first, community engagement and, you know, together combating a lot of the negative impacts of gentrification, like displacement and exclusion. Yeah. I mean, restaurants impacts on gentrification is just a topic we think about and talk about all the time in New York. You live in L.A. I mean, 
similar. Like rents are really high. It's hard for emerging restaurateurs to start businesses. And then sort of like there are all of these different factors, like developers putting money into neighborhoods, people moving. So, I mean, how do you like what are some of the big questions that you're hoping to ask and think about with this initiative? Yeah, I think the first thing we want to make sure is that we don't want this initiative to be like, you know, you are a bad restaurateur, a like small business owner, you need to do all these things or you need to not move here. Like recognizing that everyone really is doing the best that they can, but also I think trying to just the shift the framework and how people think about starting a, a local business. So many times people are, are moving to a gentrifying area because rents are affordable and real estate is a really big problem, commercial and um, residential here in the U.S. But is there a way that you can involve the local community more in making some of these initial decisions around the place that you're opening. If you are opening um, a cafe, you know, how do you involve people who are you're hoping to be regulars in menu selection, in helping you determine pricing, in just like in addition to the other, you know, resource constraints and things that you have to worry about. But like having a bit more of this democratic decision-making, participatory decision-making at the onset of your business so that people around you do feel bought in and they will continue to support you so that it's a win-win situation both for the local community members as well as for the restaurateur, the business owner in the long run. I think that is really is possible, but people who are small, starting small business are busy. They don't necessarily have all the time and the resources to be doing these kind of focus groups and initial interviews and figuring all this stuff out. And we're hoping to kind of lay out this framework that they can use whatever might be helpful for them and it's publicly available. So they they can at least try out a couple of different options. Um, we've been learning a lot from various interviews that we've been doing. And there's so many ideas, everything from, you know, making sure you have bilingual menus to finding ways, uh, smart ways of offering EBT at your local business or being able to have, you know, a community discount. There's like a lot, there's quite a menu of options, so to speak. Um, but I think that's just not kind of captured anywhere. And then there's great businesses that have already been kind of employing some of these methods like surveying community members before they even open so that they can understand what are the kind of foods that people want? What are the things that they feel this area is missing? If they need groceries, what are the kinds of groceries that they want? And being able to pull some of their resources and have like a little template um, questionnaire so that you can use it and you don't have to start from scratch. I'm hoping that that will be able to, you know, feel let people feel a little bit more empowered, feel a little bit more in control. And if they're doing initial business planning as well, be able to embed those early on. So it feels like a natural part of their um, business plan making business cycle. When you think about sort of like all these characteristics that make a restaurant a really good neighbor and like a really good element of the community, are there any restaurants that pop out into your minds um, as just being like really good community members, especially like that have opened in the last, you know, 10 years? Like, are there any restaurants that you think of as sort of like offering some inspiration in this Yes, but I just don't want to name anyone so it doesn't feel like I'm picking favorites. But I yeah. I will say, like, in terms of general characteristics, I think the ones that have been really 
amazing are the ones that you can just see are really embedded in their community in that the owners or like the leaders are consistently, you know, rallying the community to do host events or they're doing things to support unhoused neighbors or they're consistently like actually involved in the municipal decisions, like, you know, lobbying for certain things for that neighborhood, better infrastructure, you know, better sewage treatment, better, you know, uh, use of the like paving of the roads, like they're constantly trying to get the uh, community to be more invested in by the local government and also advocating for things like af- more affordable housing, advocating for uh, trying to increase the amount of commercial tenants that might have dis- been displaced because of gentrification and trying to get them back into the community in some way, whether that's hiring some of the folks that have been displaced or trying to negotiate leases where some of those businesses can come back you know, into a different space, but at least they can come back into their initial community that they might have started in you know, 15 years ago. So that all takes a lot of work, and I don't think necessarily every single restaurateur can do all of those things, but I think just seeing some of these folks who have been tirelessly embedding themselves, like they live in the area, they're like, this is the place that I am willing to set down roots and I care about the people around me. I think you you still make mistakes, but you see that there is um, genuine care and also uh, an ability to address mistakes. There's an ability to like reach out and say, thank you for that feedback. You know, we'll try to do better. Um, So yeah, those are some like really, really positive things we've seen. Have you ever thought about opening your own restaurant? I mean, you've been cooking for a long time. You've cooked professionally. Has this ever been a dream of yours? It's tough because yes and no. Um, Yes, I think there's this romanticism of having a really small place. I would love to kind of have it a little bit tucked away where it could be like a bed and breakfast sort of thing. And we can really give people a very custom, like really nice, relaxing experience. Um, but at the same time, I just, having done pop-ups for certain years, and I know pop-up, the pop-up economy and how that works is, is not the same as restaurants, but I've just never found a way of like, how do you be a fairly profitable food service business and still truly treat everyone equitably and pay them well, I'm not I'm not sure we are able to do that yet. And a lot of restaurateurs across the country, right, are trying to figure out that answer to that exact question. And I don't purport to know any more than them. So I, I don't know how to figure that out. And that has given me a lot of pause, even in uh, – the nonprofit that I run now, like, yes, we try to make sure we pay people well, but like we still can't give them benefits. Right. And that's something that like that bothers me. And I want to do something about it, but I don't know how because we don't have enough money. We don't have enough funding. We don't have like it's like this constant cycle of problems that I think small business owners at large are dealing with. So, yeah, like I I feel it would not be right for me to say, you know, because I have a vision, I want to start this thing. And some people are going to have to low key suffer for that dream to be achieved. Like, I don't want to do that until I feel like I'm, I have a model that I believe in. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things where a lot of people who love food and love cooking have fantasies of opening restaurants. And then the more you learn about this industry, the more you sort of realize what a massive, massive responsibility it is. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm writing this piece about mentorship as well. And I, one of the folks that I um, interviewed, they said something really powerful, like there's, it's a huge responsibility to be really shaping, you know, the trajectory of someone's career. And I think especially for food service and restaurants, a lot of people who 
are getting employed. They might be early career professionals. They could be early like cooks, right? And if I am going to hire those people, which I really do want to, it's a big responsibility to make sure that they really can see a true career trajectory for them in the rest of the industry, that they are growing year after year instead of being stuck as a line cook for 10 years. Like that's not fair to them. That's not fair to all, you know, all the people. So how do I create like a a little an organization that has room for everyone to grow that I also am not sure. For sure. You mentioned awards, and I, w- I do want to come back to that because we, we happen to be like sort of in the middle of oh, yeah. awards season. season. You know, James Beard nominations are being announced. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, especially with, yeah, with restaurants or writers and publications, where do you where do you fall in the in the conversation about awards? So I absolutely support everyone who's been nominated, people who've won awards. Like I want people to be recognized for their work, but I have fundamental reservations. I won't speak to all awards across all industries because I'm not super familiar. But at least for kind of food and food writing, I don't think that the way the systems that we have set up for awards right now are particularly equitable, and it causes it. I think it continues to kind of create this big distance between um, folks that are up and coming to folks that are very established and who has and does not have privilege. Um, and I I don't really see that changing, which is a little concerning. And the, there's small things like. I don't think people should have to pay to enter into an award to start with. If an award submission is $75, $150, there's going to be tons and tons of people who don't even submit their work up for consideration because they can't afford that, especially if you want to submit multiple works. And I recognize for the awards organizations that are like, well, how are we supposed to make money? I don't know. That seems like something you should probably figure out before, you you know, like – I don't know the solution to that, but I don't think that's like an appropriate response either. Um, And then there was a a good piece from Hannah Raskin a few years ago about James Beard and the voting, how they do the internal voting and how every year's winners can like vote on the pool. I think they might have changed this, but I think there's like kind of this embeds of what the selection criteria is, how the selection is done, that it's not totally transparent to the rest of the industry. And that also creates just problems in general. Who is able to decide what is the kind of work that we're looking for? Because when you look at food writing as well, a lot of times writers are writing for other writers, just like how academics write for academics. And it's like, if we constantly reward that kind of writing, then you're only kind of privileging a certain cohort of people with the big words and the big sentence, you know, the certain type of sentence structure. And that might not necessarily be good for like overall diversity in our industry. Similarly, Everyone jokes, but Michelin has like a formula in terms of what they expect in terms of service at a restaurant that is a Michelin-starred restaurant. And again, is that totally inclusive of all the different styles and how people want to eat? It's not even about what they like, but like, is this what the general public wants? Um, so, I, yeah, I have reservations at that. And then really the big, the biggest part, I think, is like due diligence. I just don't see award organizations doing the proper due diligence when they, well, after you nominate folks, are you interviewing people at the restaurant to make sure that they're paid properly, that they're not being exploited? Are you making sure that there isn't, you know, past issues around harassment? Like these are things, especially for these smaller independent places, if you interviewed every single person on staff, 
it wouldn't take that long feasibly. Like, it's not impossible. And if the pushback is, well, we don't have time for that, then I don't understand why do you feel entitled to have an award at all if you're not willing to do the due diligence. I don't think people go around buying houses that they don't do foundation checks on. You know, you just want to do that because you know it's an investment. So anyway, I'm kind of still waiting for that pin to drop. And there's already been fallout of folks that have been nominated. I'm like, how is this happening every year? And we're not doing anything about it. Yeah, it's like clockwork. And I mean, like you mentioned, owning a restaurant and employing people, giving someone an award has a lasting effect on their career. Like that will elevate their restaurant. It will put it on every tourism list above all the other you know, restaurants in that city. So it really, really has an impact on people's careers. But it, it is a really tenuous process to get to this, like, really lasting effect. Yeah, and because that is such a big change, um, I'm writing this piece for Eater on sometimes those are changes that might not be anticipated that have other externalities that people don't think of in terms of, like, Let's say if people are flocking to this tiny neighborhood in Queens that is not used to kind of this foot traffic and then there's these lines and there or maybe in L.A. there's no parking. There's like a lot of kind of these reverberations that the awards organizations aren't really thinking about. And perhaps the small business owners also are not you know, aware of or they can't anticipate. And so they also kind of don't have any means of getting like the proper support from these organizations if some of these sort of things are happening to them. There's uh, an article in Plate written by a chef, I believe he was um, in the Midwest, or Great Lakes. I'm sorry, I can't remember. But he talks about how he was nominated for James Beard a couple years, never won it. And then went into this bout of really intense depression because there was this expectation on him and then he never got it and like how that what took a toll mentally on him. So there there are, you know, real things that are happening to folks who do or do not uh, benefit from awards. And I don't think that's totally being captured in these organizations, like internal chapters, I guess. For sure. I want to talk about Avatar The Last Airbender, (laughs) just to shift gears a little bit. You're the author of the official cookbook of Avatar The Last Airbender, which came out in this past fall. For people who aren't familiar with it, Avatar The Last Airbender is a very, very popular animated fantasy series. It has so many fans. Yes. Big fandom. Very big, growing, very active fandom. Yes. What was it like sort of like imagining how dishes were cooked in like a totally like fantastical realm like how do you how do you figure out like the cooking techniques and like what something should taste like based on yeah based on a television series yeah it was definitely challenging because not only are there real like you know things that to consider like can people uh access this ingredient? Can people, uh, do they have all the equipment that you need? But also there's a lot of expectations from the fans because they've seen up close and personal a lot of these dishes be represented across the series. There are expectations around what it should taste like. And there are certain uh, characters like the cabbage merchant in the series who, if you're not familiar, is this guy who sells cabbages. They're green. And he shows up randomly in this one nation all the time. And Team Avatar constantly is, like, ruining all his cabbages. And he has this catch line that's like, my cabbages. And so, you know, there was a lot of um, 
enthusiasm for like what kind of ingredients and what kind of or not ingredients, what kind of dishes would the cabbage merchant make with his cabbages, and to be able to tie that into the folklore of uh, the overall Avatar kind of fandom was really difficult but fun. I think. And then combine that with the fact that the showrunners did draw heavily upon a lot of East Asian, also South Asian, Southeast Asian inspirations for each of the different nations that are present, as well as their costuming, kind of like what they eat. So trying to pay homage to that without it being so one for one that, you know, it, it feels like a direct pull from that country, like trying to maintain a little bit of this like fantastical charade, but also being respectful of how ingredients might be paired together in places like Japan or China. Um, that was fun. So what I tried to do was pull from like the geographies of places, let's say like China, where you have an area like the Gobi Desert, which they have, there's also a desert in Avatar, which I'm pretty sure is the Gobi Desert. Anyway, and they have a very, it's clear that that's more like Central Asian, very different food influences. So for dishes that kind of come out of that area, being able to incorporate more ingredients that are like cumin, like lamb, things that you would find more commonly in that area. Um, and for the cabbage merchants specifically, using three of his dishes to showcase how the diversity of the Earth Nation, which is more or less China. Um, so being able to show something from that area that's a little bit more Central Asian inspired, having him travel down to what would be Hong Kong and having something that's a little bit more British inspired. So there's butter in one of these for his cabbage cookies and then having something that is like completely different from a different area just to show breath. And also being able to put a little bit of geopolitical commentary in a way that is not too alienating. I call them Easter eggs. For, for example, kind of hinting at that the, there is a problem with China cracking down on the Uyghurs. And like, I can't really insert that in the, I can't say that literally, but I think I can allude to that in a way that if you're aware of geopolitical going ons, you're, you can kind of pick up on that thread because you also see it in Avatar's actual universe as well. And so recognizing that no fiction exists without the nonfiction world that it is created from and trying to be able to build a little bridge for the really engaged viewers. So hopefully people who read the cookbook um, who want to see those things will see those and kind of feel seen. And finally, I guess I'll end with just making sure that there is also careful consideration to the nations and the foods um, of like what is realistically available to that nation. So the water nation was really hard because it's based on like Inuit food and the kind of fat that they use there, like They'd probably be using things like seal blubber. I can't really include that as an ingredient, but at least I can use a saturated fat um, instead of using like vegetable oil, which is something that they probably wouldn't be using. So even those small details, at least being clear, like, hey, I really did think about this, which is why we're using lard for this recipe, um, even though it's not a one for one, that's something that was taken into account or making sure that there is Tibetan inspirations in things for the Air Nation and everything is vegetarian so that people kind of feel seen like there were people who wrote to me afterwards and was like I'm just really excited to see something like Sampa in a cookbook like this because that's really important to me so yeah that was cool I bought the book for my niece who's really into Avatar The Last Airbender I think I ordered it like a year ago way before it came <laughs> out um, and she told me about this TikTok account 
uh, this person who's been cooking through mm-hmm, mm-hmm. every dish in the book. Yes. Have you been watching? Have you been following along on this person's journey? Yes, I've commented on a couple. I haven't seen every single one, but yeah, I'm like, oh my god, this woman is very dedicated. Like, thank you. Um, and I'm like nervous for all the like, you know, things that she's gonna like, things that she you know, inevitably doesn't like. So yeah, I'm just excited that people are taking such a liking to the book and truly making it their own, like spending the time to do videos on it. Um, yeah, it just it feels it feels good to be supported. Jenny, thank you so much for being on the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>